Well, we are picking up again with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, very grateful to Jeremiah preaching last week on such short notice from a, just an excellent message from Romans 8 and for John leading the music and the worship. We're back to Acts this morning. We're looking today at Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. <clears throat> in these particular verses, we find Paul ministering in Ephesus as part of his third missionary journey. His journey began by visiting local churches that had been started in Galatia and Phrygian regions during earlier journeys. Paul obviously had a real heart for the local church and wanted to do all he could to strengthen those churches and help them. It's through the church that the Great Commission is ultimately fulfilled. Paul had a real heart for the churches, so he was wanting to strength, continue to strengthen and help those that had been started even in years past. He then made his way to Ephesus. The first people that Luke tells us about that he comes in contact with are a group of 12 men who told Paul they had been baptized into John's baptism. Well, in conversations with these men, Paul could tell something was not right. In previous verses, we were introduced to a man named Apollos. Uh, he was mighty in the scriptures. He, was, he taught accurately the way of Jesus, but he too was described as being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla, who were fellow workers with Paul, recognized some deficiencies in what Paul was teaching. And so they were able to call him aside and explain things more accurately to him. He ended up having a very significant ministry in Corinth. But whatever Apollo's deficiencies were, he did not have to be rebaptized. The 12 men that Paul came across apparently understood much less than Apollos did. And when Paul told them that John's ministry was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, it seems that that may have actually been some new information for them. So they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came upon them in a powerful way. And just like the believers at Pentecost, they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So the Lord, in a sense, caught them up into the promised blessing of Pentecost. Well, that brings us to the passage that we are looking at this morning which is Acts 19, 8 to 20. So let me read those verses. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, 
And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Back in chapter 18, verse 20, which is at, was at the very end of Paul's second missionary journey, uh, Paul actually preached in the synagogue in Ephesus. They asked him to stay longer, but he was committed to returning home to his home church at Antioch at that time, and he did, uh, but now he is back, and we see that he was able to continue speaking boldly in the synagogue there in Ephesus for three months. After that, he had to leave the synagogue, but kept teaching in a lecture hall that belonged to Tyrannus. Also told of some pretty remarkable things that took place, some extraordinary miracles, evil spirits being cast out of people, Jewish exorcists trying to imitate Paul's ministry, people burning their valuable books of divination. I mean, just some pretty amazing things that were taking place. But there's something else that really is taking center stage and giving a context for all this. In verse 8, we see that Paul was reasoning and persuading those at the synagogue about the kingdom of God. In verse 9, they were speaking evil of the way. So obviously speaking of the way is tied into the kingdom of God. In verse 10, we see that in the province of Asia, that those in the province of Asia all heard the word of the Lord. In verse 13 and verse 17, we see that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was being magnified in what took place. And then finally in verse 20, we are told that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's the context for everything that was taking place. It's so easy to focus on the things. I mean, there was resistance, there was unbelief, there was superficial imitation of the Lord, all these things taking place. But the real context of it is the kingdom of God and the word of the Lord being primary. So let's look at what we can learn about the kingdom of God from these verses. So first we're, we, we see that the, about we're going to look at the truth of the kingdom of God, the truth of the kingdom. So the things that Paul spoke in the synagogue in Ephesus are summarized under the category of the kingdom of God. A kingdom, of course, speaks of a particular king, a ruler. Uh, it speaks of particular laws, ways of governing in that particular kingdom. It speaks of those who are citizens of that kingdom, the privileges and responsibilities that they would have within that kingdom. The Bible speaks often of the kingdom of God. And one of the things that has to be considered when you're speaking of the kingdom of God, and especially the truths associated with it, are this. And that is the message of the kingdom of God is a reminder that God is the sovereign creator over all men. He's the sovereign creator over all men. Now, in speaking to the Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue, they would have familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures. So they would be clear about the fact that God is the creator of the world and all things in it. Therefore, he is the king of all creation. All creation is the realm of his rule. And, of course, the fact that God is the creator and sovereign king of all things means that all people are accountable to him as our creator and as our king. Well, this would be common knowledge to those who understood the scriptures but it's something that others needed to have emphasized to him. We have two examples uh, in Acts of sermons that Paul preached to people who were Gentiles and didn't have the same background. One is in Lystra in Acts 14, the other is in Athens in Acts 17. Well, in Lystra, Paul quoted from Psalm 146 to tell them of the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
Well, in his message at Athens, God, uh, Paul also speaks of the God who made the world and all things in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Common theme that he did in both those places. So this is the foundational truth, really, of God's kingdom of power, the kingdom of creation. He's the sovereign creator of all things. Therefore, he rules over all men, and all are accountable to him. Now, I'm sure, as you know, this is a truth that is just vehemently denied by many people. Most do not want to admit that God is the creator of the world because they know if that's true, then there are implications for their life that they do not want to deal with. For example, we are told over and over that we need to follow our heart. We are not told that we need to follow our God. We are told over and over that we need to be true to ourselves. We're not told we need to be true to our Creator. We are told over and over we need to be proud and believe in ourselves. Not that we should humble ourselves and trust the God who made us and watches over us. God is the sovereign Creator who is over all, and we are accountable to Him. That's an important basic truth of the, of the kingdom of God as far as Him being the Creator. And that leads directly to this next truth, and that is this, that the gospel of the kingdom is for all men, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Let me read again for you verses 8 and 10. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I would not be surprised that Paul probably made some emphasis on uh, God as the sovereign creator of all men, which especially fits under the kingdom of creation. But the terms used in these verses help us to see that Paul really honed in more on what we might call the kingdom of Christ. His references to the way and to the word of the Lord are specifically usually tied into the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we see, of course, that God, the creator of all men, has made the gospel available to all men. Paul began his ministry in Ephesus the same way he began his ministry in every city that had a synagogue. He began by speaking with the Jews, reasoning with them, doing his best to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. A number of them simply would not listen. At that point, he moved to a school owned by a man named Tyrannus, an Ephesian teacher who would give his lectures probably in, in, in the morning hours. They would, and, and they would usually rest, have a time of rest from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That would be likely when Paul would use the lecture hall for himself. And those who would hear him, of course, would be those Jews who had believed for sure, but also the majority were probably Gentiles. So the simple truth I want to point out from this arrangement is that the gospel of the kingdom is for all men. Yes, it's for the Jews. Salvation came to us through the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. Now, the next thing we need to take note of here under the idea of truth of the kingdom is this. Paul gave scriptural reasons, scriptural reasons for the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation for sinful men. So the truth of the kingdom of God is found in the word of God. 
The Jews knew the prophecies about the Messiah. He would be a descendant of David. He would sit on the throne of David. Those were all prophesied. The Jews would be very familiar with those prophecies. Jesus was that descendant of David. And after his death and resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns the throne of David as the Messianic king. Well, the Jews seemed to be convinced that when the Messiah came, he would restore their former earthly glory as a nation. But that's not what Jesus did. That is not what he was coming to do. Instead, he was a suffering servant, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would be. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was like a lamb that was led to slaughter. And it was the Father who was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, rendering him as a guilt offering. And as Paul always did, I'm sure he would point out that it was the Jews themselves who called for Jesus to be crucified. Their leaders led the way in this. They even mocked him as he was dying on the cross. God raised him from the dead. He was fully satisfied. He was uh, fully sat. Jesus Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God in his death on the cross. He fully accomplished the salvation for all who would believe. And it's by faith, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ that sinners like us can be saved. There's no other way to be saved. That's the way of the Lord. That's the truth of the kingdom of God. Well, the Jews at the synagogue in Ephesus were willing to listen to what Paul had to say for three months. Obviously, many of them were persuaded. Many of them did believe. But others became hardened in their unbelief. They simply could not accept that this was the Messiah. This Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised to them. So they began to actively speak evil of the gospel on a regular basis. They rejected the truth of the kingdom. They rejected the way of the Lord. As a result, of course, they would suffer under the wrath of God, the wrath of their creator, unless they would ultimately repent and believe. So these verses not only, though, speak of the truth of the kingdom of God. Secondly, they also make it clear to us in our second main point that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. The Jews were looking for a kingdom that was more physical in nature. But the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's sometimes spoken of as the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom from above. There's a number of things in these verses that really indicate the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. First is this. We see evidence here that all men, yes, are sinfully inclined to reject the gospel, but God uses the word of the Lord to bring about a spiritual new birth to enable many to believe. So the word of the Lord makes it clear that all have sinned. We have all come short of the glory of God. It tells us that there is no one who seeks after God. It tells us that there is no one who does good, that there is no one... Who, who actually seeks him and uh, seeks the glory of God, says we're all dead in our transgressions and sins. We are slaves to sin. We walk according to the prince of the power of the air, all by nature, children of wrath. Just some horrible phrases that are used to describe every single person who's ever been born. And so we see evidence of those kind of things in verse 9 when it speaks of people becoming hardened in their unbelief. They're disobedient to the word of the Lord. They are actively beginning to speak evil of the way to others. They're trying to turn other people against the gospel. And honestly, that's what you would expect based on what the, how our nature is described. So how do we explain the fact that there were clearly people who did believe the word of the Lord, 
and are described as disciples in verse 9. How did that happen? Well, they too had heard the message of the kingdom, the word of the Lord from Paul. And the Lord in His grace calls them to be born again, to be born of the Spirit. So God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's what He did for these who believed. They were born of the Spirit. You remember Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So God in His grace caused many of those who heard the word of the Lord to be born of the Spirit. They were saved by grace through faith, and even the faith to believe in Christ, Jesus as the Christ, came as a gift from God. All people are born once, and it's by that physical birth that we're brought into His kingdom of creation. We have God as our sovereign creator. But it's by being born again, born of the Spirit, that a person is brought into the kingdom of Christ. That's because the kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom. Well, in this spiritual kingdom, we also see the Lord has called his disciples to organize themselves into local churches. In verse 9, we are told that after getting active resistance in the synagogue, it says Paul withdrew them and took away the disciples and then was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Well, the word for withdrawal here, that's not just the idea that they moved from one place to another place. It's the idea that they were seceding from the synagogue. This was a formal withdrawal. And then when Paul says he took away the disciples, it's the idea of really, he's basically, he's drawing a line. He's drawing a line between the unbelieving Jews and those who had put their faith in Christ. So he withdrew from the synagogue to form a separate society, so to speak. In other words, it was the formation of the church. Everywhere that Paul went, he would help those who had put their faith in Christ to form a church. This was always a major emphasis in his ministry. And in his letter to the Ephesians, which was, of course, was a letter to the church in Ephesus, he talks about the church in some really remarkable ways. I want to read a few things that really especially highlight the spiritual nature of the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. But it, says, it says, God the Father put all things in subjection under his feet, the feet of Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So really what Paul says here is that Christ fills his church with his own life. The church is described as Christ's fullness. Our mediator is the head and we are the body. Those are amazing spiritual terms. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul describes the church as being made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. He said he's taken those two and made one new man. The church is further described as having a citizenship within the kingdom. We are God's household. We are God's children. We are God's building. We are a holy temple in the Lord. We're a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Those are all just amazing descriptions, and they describe local churches. The local church is just a wonderful example of the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God in Christ. 
Well, then in Acts 19, Paul gives further examples of the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God and, and as, as far as his ministry in Ephesus. So look at verses 11 through 17. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So we see from these verses that God confirmed the gospel of the kingdom through extraordinary miracles. He made it clear that evil spirits are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Evil spirits are subject to him. Verse 11 and 12 speak of just extraordinary miracles that God was doing through the hands of Paul. Now, it's important for us to remember that God is always at work in the world through his works and acts of providence. He perpetually upholds all things. He perpetually directs and is governing all creatures and all events. He most often does this by what we would call ordinary means, things that we're used to, things that we're just accustomed to. For example, when someone gets sick, there are several ordinary means that are oftentimes used to address us when we're sick. You may go see a doctor. You may take some medicine. Sometimes it's to the point where you need surgery. I mean, there are some things, there are a number of things that we can do. Those things are helpful. Those are the ordinary, everyday kind of means that are available that God uses. And we're grateful for the people that God uses. And we need to make sure that we give thanks to God, even though those things come to us from Tylenol out of a bottle or through the hands of a doctor or something like that. Ultimately, as we get better from those sicknesses, it's God who gets the praise for that. It's God who gets the thanks for that. Even though it's working in very ordinary kinds of ways that just seem kind of natural to us. That's how God normally works in those kind of everyday, ordinary kind of things. But there are times God does his work in miraculous ways. Sometimes people who are sick, injured, diseased, are healed in out-of-the-ordinary kind of ways. In Ephesus, there was another layer of out-of-the-ordinary because these people were getting healed or delivered from demonic possession through handkerchiefs or aprons that actually belonged to Paul, and they would just take that over and lay it on the person, and they would be healed or they would be delivered. So Paul was not even present when it happened. I mean, these handkerchiefs, these aprons, People speculated that, and this makes sense, that it may have been things that Paul used in his work of making tents. You know, he still may have been doing that, and there were some things that that were connected with him. But it reminds us, really, of a couple things, other examples in the Bible. You remember a time when uh, there was a woman who touched Jesus' robe. Jesus was not even aware she was doing that, and she was touching his robe, and she touched his robe, and by doing that, 
she, knew, she was completely healed just by touching the garment that Jesus was wearing. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, it's been a while back, but you might remember that there was a time when sick people were being healed just by the fact of being Peter's shadow falling on them. Just if they happened to be in Peter's shadow, they would be healed. These are just extraordinary miracles that God performed through Paul, just like these others that happened through Jesus and Peter. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, things like this are described by Paul as signs of a true apostle. So God brought them about as confirmation of Paul's ministry and of his message, the message of the kingdom of God. And it's a message that was right. It was a message that was true. There were many who were opposed about it and saying, no, he's not right. Paul was saying, yes, he, I mean, God was saying, yes, he is right. And these, and these miracles were kind of drawing attention to what Paul was saying in his ministry there. Well, they obviously did get people's attention. And one of the categories of people who were delivered were those who were possessed by evil spirits. Well, there were also Jewish exorcists at this time who went from place to place uh, working to help people who were being oppressed by evil spirits in some way. Well, they noticed something important in what Paul was doing. Those who were being delivered from demonic possession were being delivered through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, just as we see in the Gospels, the evil spirits are subject to Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over evil spirits as well as the good and godly spirits. They must do what he says. When he tells them to depart, they must depart. That's another characteristic of the kingdom of God in Christ. He is the Lord of all, even evil spirits. But to this recognition, this recognition led the Jewish exorcists to try to claim that power for themselves. So that leads us to our next point from their experience. The name of Jesus is not a magical incantation that people can use to get what they want. Jesus is Lord. The Jewish exorcist would travel around using various spells, charms, incantations, tell people's uh, fortunes, cure diseases, uh, help people who were disturbed in various ways, whatever it might be. From what I have read, um, their work is oftentimes more characterized maybe online of trickery and trying to get people to pay them for services. There was much of what they did was no doubt built on superstition. Interesting enough, Josephus, who was the Jewish historian, said that some of the spells that they used were thought to have been handed down by Solomon. Don't know for sure about that, but there was, there was obviously a, just a great interest in the, in the mysterious and the occult uh, at this time. Well, these exorcists were impressed with the things that they were seeing happen through Paul as he dealt with people who were under the influence of demonic spirits. Sure, they're always looking for new techniques, so they decide to imitate what they have seen Paul do. And they attempted to cast out a demon in a particular way. They say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, Luke focuses on the seven sons of a man named Sceva who tried this method. And the evil spirit speaks to them through the man that the spirit that they that that is possessed by the spirit. 
And then verse 15 and 16 tell us what happened. It says, The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in who was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I mean, what a rude awakening. Can you imagine? It's just hard to even imagine that taking place. You're having a, supposedly a prayer meeting here, and everybody gets beat up and run out of the house. Their clothes are torn off. And Well, the Spirit knows very well who Jesus is. The Spirit knows who Paul is. Then he says, but who are you? In other words, you have no status whatsoever. What right do you have to use this holy name? You know that it is at the name of Jesus that demons tremble. But this evil spirit knows that these people are not using the name of Jesus in a reverential way. They're using his name as a gimmick. So through one man, one evil spirit leaps on seven other men, overcomes them, beats them up, they run out of the house, badly wounded, clothes being torn off of them. Now compare that with, you may remember the Gadarene demoniac. He was possessed, he was demon-possessed as well. Jesus spoke to him. The demons identified, he was asking the name of demon, says we are legion because we are many. If you take legion literally, uh, a Roman legion consisted of 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers, whether it meant to be literal or not. Just, but it's the idea that there were many, many demons that were inhabiting this one man. Jesus speaks a word, they're all gone. All of them, the whole legion. Here you have one demon-possessed man single-handedly beating up seven other men because they use Jesus' name in an unholy way. The Lord allowed this demon to speak in order to give honor to Christ. It's also a judgment here on those who would use his name in vain. Using God's name in vain, of course, is one of the Ten Commandments, and it continues to be a very common sin. So many ways that we are tempted in this sin, it's just kind of sickening to me when you hear people make statements or even put up a Facebook meme that uses something Jesus said or did and out of context or put words in his mouth to kind of support their particular position or their particular political view. I mean, that's a violation of the third commandment is what it is. It's taking his name in vain. Well, praise God, the Lord took this sinful and foolish action of seven sons of Sceva and brought glory to himself. Verse 17 says this became known to both Jews and Greeks, all who did in Ephesus, fear fell upon all of them. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So this vindicated the Lord as he was performing these extraordinary miracles through Paul. Both Jews and Greeks alike were hearing of the situation. They were stricken with fear and what they heard. It's clear that in the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the praise, all the honor. He took the exorcist actions that profaned his name and turned it around so that his name was glorified instead. 
Now let's look at our final example of the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. The Lord uses his word to bring about the growth of his kingdom numerically and to graciously prevail in the lives of his children. Verses 18 to 20. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Verse 20, there is one of Paul's summary verses to describe things that were taking place. And he tells us that the word of God first was growing mightily. The word of the Lord was growing mightily. The word there used, it means it's, 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 it's like it, it's, uh, it's growing rapidly and with great force. Well, we've seen several examples of that in these verses. When Paul was forced out of the synagogue, he was then able to go on a daily, to, to, to go speak on a daily basis at the school of Tyrannus. So Paul used, uh, God used the rebellion of the Jews to give Paul a daily platform instead of just once a week on the Sabbath at the synagogue. And as a result, the word of the Lord became more accessible to even more people. And we're told in verse 10 that over a two-year period, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, Asia here is speaking of the West Coast province of Asia Minor. Well, this happened through Paul's preaching, the teaching of his fellow workers, others who were repeating uh, the things that they were hearing Paul saying. And since he was teaching of the kingdom of God, that meant the word of the Lord was the content of what was being said, and it spread rapidly. The Lord also, of course, used the extraordinary miracles that happened through Paul. He even used the sinful and foolish actions of the Jewish exorcist to cause the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be magnified. So the word of the Lord was spreading rapidly. But Luke also tells the Lord that the, that, that the word of the Lord was prevailing. So it's shown to be strong, to be able to prevail over opposition. It prevailed over the opposition in the synagogue. Because the Lord caused many to be born again in spite of those who were speaking evil of the way and trying to talk down the gospel that, Jesus, that, uh, that Paul was speaking of. Well, the word of the Lord prevailed over the seven sons of Sceva, proved them to be re religious impostors who did not know God. In fact, I mean, they were quite literally beaten to a pulp. Verse 18 and 19 speak of another example of how the word of the Lord prevailed. Because as the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, the fear of the Lord fell upon all the people of Ephesus. And we see some very specific changes that took place as a result. In verse 18, those who had been involved in sorcery and divination saw very clearly how sinful this was. These were people who seems to have had already put their faith in Christ, but apparently had not recognized the gravity of how evil this was. I mean, this was things that were, these were things that were just so common in Ephesus. But the situation with the Jewish exorcist brought it to light. So to show how serious they were about repenting, they brought their magic books and burned them. This sorcery was connected with the worship of Diana. Uh, let me talk about this some next week as well, which was extremely strong in Ephesus. And that's why these occult practices were so widespread. The books used 
for these various incantations would have been very expensive. Actually, really, all books were very valuable because it took so much time and effort to produce a book. The 50,000 pieces of silver would add up to about $6 million in our money. It's kind of a lot. And so, I mean, just a practical example of the word of the Lord prevailing. God used his word to make this sin real. I mean, they saw clearly, this is wrong. This is evil. He used his word to show them what they needed to do to repent. He used his word to grant them the strength and the faith they needed to repent. Wouldn't you be tempted to sell those books? Six million dollars can be helpful. They burned it all up. Burned it all up in repentance as as they repented. The word of the Lord prevailed. It's not the words of man that prevail. It feels like that sometimes. It's not the unbiblical philosophies of man that prevail. It's not the words of the politician. It's not the words of the media that prevail. It's the word of the Lord. And as Christians, it is such a blessing to us to be citizens of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. And we praise him for how his word continues to grow mightily and to prevail in our lives as well. Lord, we want to thank you very much again for your word. I thank you that it's been revealed to you. That's one of the works that we mentioned earlier, the fact that you have inspired holy men to write these words and the fact that they've been preserved down through the centuries and the fact that we have them in our own language. We just read about the country of Maldives. Just were, it's just, there is just a couple books of the Bible that have been translated in their language, and, most, and they're not even allowed in the country. What a blessing it is to us to have so much access to your word to this word of the Lord, and it's so important to us, to our own lives. I thank you for how your word has spread in our lives. I thank you for how you've given us understanding of what it means. There's much of it that we don't understand. We know that. But there are so many things that you have given us insight to. You have made application to our lives as well. And we can give examples of how your word has prevailed in our lives that has changed our thinking that has changed our direction in life. It's, tra- it's, it's changed how we understand things. Thank you for how your word prevails in our life in so many ways. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, we see that Paul was speaking much of the kingdom of God. And yes, you're under the kingdom of God's creation. God is your sovereign creator. But I would invite you to come into the kingdom of Christ, to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and to receive him as your Savior and as your King. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. There are so many things that I've done and so many things, ways that I have fallen short of what you require of me. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to commit my life to have Jesus as the Lord, as the King of my life, as I live in your kingdom. 
if you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can sh you can make a note on the tear off, or those on the watching on online can reach out to us through the website. It is the name of Christ. That